This is an ABC podcast. The day Tim first got stoned, he was a young teenager getting his teeth checked in the suburbs of Adelaide. Going from the dry heat of an Adelaide summer into the cool of a mobile dentist, it's really pleasant, even though there's the clatter of mechanical instruments of drilling, thrilling. Felt that beautiful sensation of cool fabric against hot skin. No drills had started yet. The only sound was the radio being turned on. And this song starts off with a loping kind of drum beat and then the song kicks in and then the lead singer talks about starting something up. It was September 1981 and the Rolling Stones are writing up the Aussie music charts. Something about the cluster of notes, the harmonies in that opening guitar riff and indeed in the whole song, the backing vocals, the lead vocal the rhythm and the push and pull of it. What I remember is the sensation of being charged, my little heart and brain and nether regions ready to accept all that was lascivious and naughty. Everything was different after that. I weighed a different amount, I walked different, I wanted my hair to be different. I wanted everything to be different. And it happened because of a song, sitting in a dentist's chair. Elizabeth Kulas, welcome to Days Like These. Today, reporter Sam Wicks brings us the story of rock and roll dreams come true. He's managed to land us something very special, an audience with Tim Rogers, frontman for the iconic Aussie band UMI. Tim is successful by any measure. He has a huge back catalogue, he's bagged arias and accolades, has the respect of any Australian musician you can think of, he's even got his own radio show on Double J. But deep in Tim's heart beats the love of a fan who still remembers the exact moment of his conversion, when the riffs of the Rolling Stones song Start Me Up took him body and soul. So fresh from that dental checkup, a young Tim races back to his ordinary bedroom in suburban Adelaide and attempts to conjure the dark arts of Mick and Keith. My attempts at trying to play Start Me Up, the secret hadn't been revealed and it was just a C to an F and no matter how much I played that on my little gut string acoustic, I just didn't have that sound. Busting out of London in 1962, the Stones immediately shifted the needle on pop culture. They battled the Beatles on the charts. They got caught up in drug busts. And they played the disastrous Ultimot concert, which brought the 60s to a crashing halt. The Stones' bad boys of rock and roll reputation was well earned. By 1981, though, when they found the ears of young Tim, 
the band were more establishment than outsiders. But they still shook up his 11-year-old world, where his regular heroes wielded cricket bats, not guitars. Now, did John waits for Lily? And this ball is short, he hooks it, and it's going out behind square towards the boundary. Hughes is underneath it, and he takes it. The crowd give him a cheer, and all the Australian players come in to congratulate Lily. I was obsessed with the cricket. The posters on the walls were Dennis Lilly, early 80s Australian cricket players, and the walls were stripped of the cricket players that I loved. Any photo I could get of the Rolling Stones replaced those posters. That era was spandex for Mick. Keith looking great, had his great thatch of hair, then Ronnie Wood, the evil twin, Charlie Demure, a lot of pastels, and, and Bill Wyman committing some of the worst crimes, sartorial Stones history. Not only did my walls get tessellated with pictures of them Rolling Stones, my pencil case also got a bashing. So I'd draw the Stones tongue mouth logo really quickly and I whacked that over every flippin' thing. And that's how I got to meet Sherman Lee. Fast forward a couple of years, and Tim's enrolled at Cabra College in the leafy Adelaide suburb of Cumberland Park. He's been schooling himself up in Stones folklore, and he's desperately looking for someone to share his love for the band. He finds it in one of his classmates. Sherman, smart, funny, kind of wise. We became friends because he saw the Stones logo brandished everywhere. His family owned a restaurant in town and he seemed to have a bit of money. Tim Rogers, do you like the Rolling Stones? Yeah, Sherman Lee, I sure do. What records you got? Said, not much. (laughs) Big hits, High Tide Green Grass. And uh, a couple of singles from Tattoo You. He said, well, why don't I make you some tapes? Thank you, Sherman. My favourite cassette was a Stones compilation that he made that went from very early singles up through early 70s stuff, stuff off Sticky Fingers, Some Girls... side he put uh, the Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks, which ripped my head off and <laughs> stuffed it full of lysergics and then stitched my head back on. I never delineated between what the Sex Pistols represented and what the Stones did at that time. It just sounded like flipping great rock and roll music to me. The thing about being introduced to the Rolling Stones was that through them I got introduced to other points of culture, sexual culture or even literature. Coincidentally, meeting up with Sherman, who had a bit of disposable income, we didn't spend money on donuts and stuff at the canteen. We'd get pot, hot, hot, cigarettes, booze. We'd go and um, sit out in the big ovals out there at Cabra College and spark up and play Stones records and turning on. Coming straight out of swinging London, Steins were never just about the music. 
And whether it was Mick's ruffled shirts or keeps flowing scarves, clothes maketh the band. Trying on their loose style for size, Tim's resourceful when it comes to dressing his lanky frame. The result's more salvos than Savile Row. My lord, if I knew where I could get a pair of houndstooth trousers or a button-down collared long-sleeved shirt, but it was... I just had to make up approximations of everything, borrowing suit jackets of my mum's, turning the collars up and a scarf, and, oh, being humiliated resoundingly. (laughs) I wish there was photographic evidence of that because maybe I was a tougher kid than I remember. I remember myself as being weepy and vulnerable, but getting around looking like 81 Keith around suburban Adelaide at that time was... I give props to that kid. I was very skinny and a bit fragile, but what they gave me permission to be was kind of odd-looking, kind of kooky-looking, and that was all right. There's a misrepresentation of the artist as being at ease with the world or full of self-confidence, when really what I got from them Rolling Stones is it's okay to be marginal. Now, of course, the odd little bit about it is that at that time, in the early 80s, they were anything but marginal. But you get your invites where you can. <laughs> and I'm forever grateful for that because I no longer wanted to try so hard to be popular or particularly swarthy because whatever daily little humiliation went on, I could just put on headphones or get to that guitar and play those songs. It was comforting, it was thrilling, but it was also a good place to go and hide. this young guy who's having panic attacks. He's wrestling with depression. And the music, well, it gives him something to cling to, a respite from all that pressure in his head. Fresh out of high school and unsure of his next move, he enrolls at law school in Canberra. He plays in a couple of groups, dabbles in theatre, but a full-blown nervous breakdown forces him to drop out and relocate to Sydney. Tim's making the most of the live music scene there when he gets an invite that will put him on his path. My brother, Jamie, and my best mate, Nick Tischler, they wanted to get a band together. Now, they let me play guitar with them. I was in a band, I was in a gang. It was just a relief at the time, but I look back now and I think, thank fuck I did that. The first show that we played, I played in a Stones T-shirt. I guess at the time, late 80s, early 90s, me turning up to shows in crushed velvet flares or pirate shirts, it was my little attempt at dressing 68 Stones. Tim has his in. He's in a band and playing shows. But this first iteration of You and I will be short-lived. Jamie Rogers and Nick Tischler leave the group, and the lineup settles with Andy Kent on bass and Rusty Hopkinson on drums. You Am I are on the rise. Following the success of their debut album, the band decamps to New York City to record the follow up. Back home, that record, Hi Fi Way, is sitting at the top of the charts when they're faced with an enviable dilemma. 
about 94 and 95, and the Rolling Stones were touring Australia. Our manager, Kate Stewart, had told us, OK, you, your album's just gone to number one, boys. And <laughs> there was some talk that we were had been offered the support slot, and we would have to make the choice to tour with them or go out on our own tour. We had a dinner together, and when I say dinner, I mean drinks, and had to have this serious conversation. It wasn't that we argued about it. We thought, what a wonderful decision to have to make. <laughs> the Cruel Sea got the tour, and they should have, and they were magnificent, and we didn't have to make that decision in the end. But for a night there, I thought, wow, I'm getting to fulfil either that lifelong dream or that one. Watching his mates, the Cruel Sea, play with the Rolling Stones, Tim gets to see his heroes perform live for the very first time. Despite his band missing out on the support, UMI continue their advance, releasing a steady stream of new music, touring the world, and winning over more fans here and abroad. The prospect of touring with another rock juggernaut, R.E.M., lands Tim at a venue known as the world's most famous arena. You and I were in New York and we'd been invited to go and see R.E.M. at Madison Square Garden. We were up for being on a tour with them, so the record company that we were with at the time said, hey, come along and see the show and then there's a party afterwards. But anyway, I went, loved the show, and this guy, I remember his bum bag in shorts and uh, his T-shirt and uh, dancing by himself and he turned around and looked at me and uh, I went, hey, he went, hey, dude, turned back around and then in between songs, he turned around to me and said, hey, you know who you look like? You look like that guy on the Rolling Stones who smokes too much. Wow, which one are you talking about? <laughs> and I thought, here I am in New York City and still just a Rolling Stone wannabe. Tim's a star in his own right, but his association with rock and roll's bad boys endures. Guitarist Ronnie Wood joined the Rolling Stones in 1975, and he's been the new guy ever since. UMI recruit their very own Ronnie Wood when guitarist and Stones fan Davey Lane joins them in 1999. With new energy charging the band, they record two albums just a year apart. On the back of that second album with Davey, UMI get an offer they can't refuse. It's 2003 and the Stones were touring, Jet were doing the tour and they couldn't do Brisbane for some reason and we got asked to do them. So that's a lot of years of, of fandom and then UMI get asked to play with the Stones and so we say yes and it's on, we're in Stones World. Backstage before the gig, Davey and I pair off and go looking for booze and hijinks. Both steeped in all things stones, Tim and Davey are wide-eyed as they access all areas of the Brisbane Entertainment Centre. This is their chance to lift back the curtain on a band that changed the course of music history. Check, check, one, two, check. That should be good. It's time for sound check. We do a sound check. And as we're walking off, I think it was Keith's guitar tech, lovely guy came up and said, you know, how you doing? I like the sound. And you want to come and have a look at the guitar racks? 
yeah. And so he shows us around Keith and Ronnie's guitar world. And I see this guitar in Ronnie's guitar rack, and it's this plexiglass Dan Armstrong, I think. I see it and I think that's got to be the guitar that Keith played on the 1969 US tour and that he played at Altamont. And I'm looking at it and his guitar tech goes, you want to hold it? Yes. Play a few little things. And I said, why is it in Ronnie's? Oh, and he said, well, Keith lost it to Ronnie in a card game. Now, to a nerd like me and to Daisy, that is everything. Having touched the grail, Tim's now preparing for the first show. As a lifelong student of the Rolling Stones' riffs, moves, even their stage banter, he's got some firm ideas about what he does and doesn't want to do on that stadium stage. We went into those shows wanting to be a 1964 Stones ramshackle, not studious, po-faced, and to not be a pallid facsimile of our favourite version of the Stones. Playing that night, I wanted to be naughty and your mum and dad are going to hate it. We felt young and brattish. I don't particularly want to feel young and brattish, but looking out at that crowd, I thought... How many real fans are out there? How many fans are out there since they were kids who wanted to carve the Stones logo into their forearms and and steal any photograph, any record, any mention of them and covet it and it be their portal to an underworld, a world of the demimond? In the spirit of that, throwing in little Stones references during our show, little aphorisms of Keith's, you know... The ancient art of weaving, which is one that he uses to describe the guitar playing of Ian Ronnie, and I throw that in to introduce Davey. Here he is, our master weaver, Dave Lane. I pulled out some dialogue from Mick from a 1969 live record, and I'd use that in between a song. Think of busted button on my trousers, think they might fall down. You don't want my trousers to fall down now, do you? I didn't wait for a response, but there would have been three people or 30 people who would have got it. And of those 30, 27 would have thought, you prick, you stole that from Mick. And there's me going, yeah, I know. Let's enjoy this moment together. We're seeing the flipping stones, for God's sake. Weren't mean-spirited, but there's a little bit of spirit in there because the front ten rows even when the Stones were playing, were held by people who looked like, oh, well, let's go and see the Stones. Yeah, hope they play Satisfaction. Get stuffed. As a nod and a wink to those in the know, Tim sends a signal to all the real Stones fans in the audience that night. Once they burn through their allotted 45-minute slot, you and I make the most of their backstage access. We didn't meet him that night, but we went to the catering area, turn a corner, and, oh, there's Keith's room, his domain, and it's all um, incense and beautiful reggae music blasting. You hear a cackle. (laughs) So you kind of know they're in the building. There's a lot of nice food around, and I don't want to eat at a Stones gig. But then Mick walks in and it's a big room and you look around and think, I bet these are politicians and, or they're moneyed up people, not a strip of velvet anywhere. 
And Mick walks in and does a round of the room, goes and talks to people, loves the ladies, and of course people are just losing their minds, but maintaining the distance because that seems to be what rich people do. Mick does a circuit of the whole room. He must have spoken to 40 people. Notice Dave and I pouring beers and I think he just clocked us and said, oh, they're in a support band. All right, yeah, you know, hello boys, kind of gave us a wink. He knew the people that he had to talk to and we weren't included and that's flipping fine. Watch the Stone Show and it's kind of lacklustre. We're watching from the side of stage. They didn't have a great night. The crowd weren't great. You could hear Mick yelling out to Charlie, who's fucking snoozing in the crowd then? Next morning, I get a call from the Stones tour manager. Hello, this is Tim Rogers. Said, yeah, yeah. Look, we've got a bit of a problem. Yes, sir. He said, yeah, Timmy, I'm going to have to ask you to cut it back on the salty language. I beg your pardon? Yeah, look, we got a couple of complaints last night about your language. Timmy, I'm very well aware of the irony that you're getting told off for using bad language when playing with the bad boys of rock and roll. But, you know, Timmy, if you could calm it down. I said, I'll do whatever. But apparently I'd um, passed some comment about there being a, a vacant seat in the front row. And a, I think it was Peter Beatty may have been the Queensland Premier. Peter Beatty isn't sitting in his fucking seat. <laughs> Beatty, you prick, I'll take that or something anyway. It was typical bad language and bullshit, but I was enthusiastic and happy. That wasn't a request from the band themselves. It was, uh, you know, they got 53 complaints. That opening act were a little bit fruity. After that on-stage swipe at the Queensland premiere, Tim's suitably chastened by the Stones tour manager. Dressing down aside, he's still keen to bring some danger to the stage. When you and I play the next night. The second night we play our show, less salty language and having drinks, and then um, a lady comes, knocks on our door and says, um, you want to come meet the boys? And uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> Rusty, the drummer in UMI, explains it this way. said that out of the corner of his eye, he noticed a little old lady walk through the door. He may have been a little furry-minded at that point, but he looks over and he says, oh, shit, that's Charlie Watts. Hello, lads. And Mick kind of bounds in. Oh, here's my lads, here's my lads. <laughs> and then, bam, Keith and Ronnie fall through the door like you want them to. Keith and Ronnie are being Keith and Ronnie in excelsis. Hey, boys, boys. They're being funny and kind of... And I had a Slade T-shirt on. And Ronnie Wood looks at my T-shirt, Slade, oh, man, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mick looks at me and does the windmill motion. Loving the Pete action, mate, loving the windmill. There's a photo of that. And in the photo, I'm smiling so hard that I can't imagine my face returning because as we're posing for the photo, Mick's got his mouth open and he's saying yeah with the boys with the boys that 10-15 minutes backstage with them was everything this encounter has been 22 years in the making and it's got everything Tim could have wished for a stylish and demure Charlie Watts Mick Jagger commenting on the windmill guitar move Tim pinched from Pete Townsend and Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood playing up their roles as roguish rock stars. And then their tour manager came and said, all right, lads, minutes of stage. All right, lads, little hugs, high-fives, shaking hands, whatever. 
And as they go to hit the stage, Keith turns to Ronnie and says, Hey, Ronnie, what are we fucking playing first then? And cackles himself and they're gone. And they're on stage. That night, they were magnificent and shat all over the first night. Later that night, we're in a hotel room and with our partners and living it up. Rusty told me, um, did you see Mick's side of stage when we were playing? No. There's a bit of in-between song banter on a record called Get Ye Ah Yas Out where Mick says to the crowd, think of busted button on my trousers, think they might fall down. You don't want my trousers to fall down now, do you? I'd use that little bit of mixed dialogue in between two songs of ours as a little nod and a wink to the real Stones fans in the crowd that night in Brisbane to a smattering of giggles. Rusty said that he looked over at that stage to the monitor desk on the left-hand side of stage and Mick was watching it and listening to it and to my great relief burst out laughing so I nicked a bit of mixed dialogue from 1969 used it in Brisbane in 2003 and I made Mick laugh yeah from that first moment in a dentist chair in Adelaide Tim's life has been fit ever soundtracked by the Stones. The 11-year-old schoolboy is now a proper grown-up rock star, and the black and blue riffs of those cornerstones of rock still give him shelter. If I hear Beggar's Banquet, if I put on Exile or Goat's Head Soup, I go somewhere that I know that is pleasing to me. I regard that music as dance music, as making love music, as drinking music, as drug-taking music. As beautiful music, possibly escapism. I'll leave that to one of the many therapists, but it doesn't matter. I've got a body and a temperament that feels very good there. I feel turned on, I feel switched on. I can access that at age 51 by putting on those records and you can damn well bet I'm alone in my room and I'm dancing. And if it happens to happen when I'm out of the pub or the club or on an aeroplane, you're welcome to join in. was reported by the brilliant Sam Wicks. And the episode featured all original music, played by Mr Tim Rogers himself. We'd love you to subscribe to Days Like These, and if you're enjoying the show, we'd also love it if you'd leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. You can also share us with a friend or on Twitter or Facebook. And if you want to send something our way, please get in touch. Our email is dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud, and our season two reporting team includes Alex Lawback, Sam Wicks, James Viver, and Belinda Lopez. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick, and our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design on this episode by Sam Wicks and Simon Branthwaite, with thanks to Timothy Nicastri and Stephen Tilley.